You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. We're going to go right into the Gospel of Matthew today for the reading of the Word. And we've been emphasizing following Jesus in the midst of chaos. If you haven't recognized by now, chaos has a way of showing up in your life and it was not on the calendar. And so what you find is this, is that when you go into your toolbox of life, the question is, do you have the necessary things to adapt to what has happened to you in your life. And so I'm going to ask everybody to stand for the reading of the word. And we're just going to stay with it. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be reading three different segments of scripture today. And I think it will be obvious what the emphasis is. So Matthew chapter 2 or chapter 3. Let's begin. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then now Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, Holy Spirit, I pray as we learn the word of God today that it just doesn't fill our mind with a bunch of facts and figures and insights. We want it to touch our heart, change our motives, redirect us in momentums that are not going the right way. Redirect us, we pray. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 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 The Lord bless you. You can be seated. So we're continuing on in the series talking about the Gospel of Matthew following Jesus in the midst of chaos. You probably saw by the text what the emphasis was. We're going to be talking about repentance. And there's also an uh, emphasis on what we call good fruit. Now this is interesting from the standpoint when we look at what Matthew or who Matthew was writing to, and we're going to get into this in a little bit. But to kind of set the stage for today's message is this. One of the challenges I think all of us need to be aware of is this, is how do you cultivate a faith that can weather all the seasons and storms of life? If you haven't realized by now that it's not always sunny and blue skies when it comes to your faith. There are seasons of life that come and go. And I will even say this, as a person begins to progress in life from high school to college or trade school to finding their jobs to getting a family or whatever, there's other dimensions in family or other dimensions and phases that happen as well. So you not only have just the, uh, the seasons that come and go, you also have phases that come and go. And those two interactions Yeah, you find out this, it's really about the ability to be adaptable in life, which is so key because if you haven't recognized by now, most of the time when chaos shows up, it was never an appointment. 
You look on your calendar and it wasn't scheduled for the day. It just showed up and then it lingered. And then so all of a sudden you find yourself in this adaptability stage. What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And a lot of that is determined based on the previous activity that we have lived up to that moment. What have we put in the toolbox of our life that helps me to adapt or the ability to not cope so well and we realize some of our deficiencies. So in one sense, let's talk about some of those, those issues of chaos. I call them also significant events. Whether it's personal or local, regional, national, or international, significant events can reveal what we're made of. It's those curveballs that come at us in life. It's that inside fastball that we weren't expecting that can reveal the stuff that we're really made of. And it shows, like I said, it's one thing to say, I believe this and I live by this when everything is great. Let some things start folding and collapsing and cracking and get strained and stressed. And all of a sudden, now you start to find out what you're really made out of. The other part of that is this. In, an, in another sense, it's these same events that can make us into something that we previously weren't. If you're in the world of sports or have been a part of sports, you understand that. You go into a particular event, you play an opponent, and the opponent just absolutely dominates you, just crushes you. And you walk away thinking, I, I thought I was prepared, I was ready, and then you find out your opponent had found a weakness, and they exploited it, and you just didn't lose, you lost big. And you walk away with, really, you have to make a decision. What am I going to do that I thought I had this in my box? I thought I was prepared for this, but my opponent exposed that I wasn't opposed or wasn't ready for this. So they go back and they readjust. It's called that halftime adjustment, but sometimes it has to happen after the game. And you go, this is what we're going to do so that never happens again. So you have the ability to develop into something that you weren't before. So sometimes these events can cause us to grow and develop in arenas of life we had no idea that we were deficient in. We had no idea that it was going to be a challenge until it happened. And then we're like, okay, I'm going to fix that so that doesn't happen again. So it actually builds us. It actually grows and develops us. Now, I'm not saying it's a warm, fuzzy moment. But it is a tool that sometimes happens. It not only reveals what we're made out of, it shows us what we can become and what we need to acquire and learn. So here's the thing. I've set the stage up uh, every time with the Gospel of Matthew because I think it's important at least to have a basic understanding. I've shared these pr principles every time. So let's read it again. What does that say? Read it. Text without context. So I could preach on this Gospel today, the text that I read, and it would be real easy to preach on repentance and bear fruit, and you don't even have to refer to the context of what Matthew was doing. You could just preach that, whether you get into the uh, context of what Matthew was talking about or not. So, but what I wanna do is this, I want to put it in the context, because as we said, it was in 64 AD that Nero burnt the capital city of Rome down, and then following that, and by the way, the Christians got blamed for that. So now they're in mass persecution. They're dying left and right, sometimes even for sport. Then in 70 AD, the general Titus of the Roman army sacks the Jerusalem. A million Jews are slaughtered and they're scattered. And by the way, they were scattered for 2,000 years and never came back until 1948. So that's what you call utter devastation. Okay. And the question then with that as the background is this, you're kind of going like, why would the message be repent and produce fruit? 
I mean, these, these, these folks need a lot. Okay? And we've talked a little bit the last couple of weeks about some of the verses that he wrote and how it would have hit them and how it would have affected their context and who they were. But when you look at it from this context, you go, hmm, that's interesting. Okay, you can make a pretty good case for repent, okay? Because they hadn't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, so, he, so he's making the case, but produce fruit. These are folks who already have an orientation towards God. It's just that they're not ready to accept who Jesus is. But they are orientated towards God. So why the big emphasis on repent and produce fruit when these are people now who are running for their lives? What's the connection? It almost kind of seems somewhat of a bold message for the context that they're in. So let's begin to unpack this a little further. So, by the way, let me just say this. Some of the first two points are in the form of a question. So we're not playing Jeopardy. The other half of you don't even know what Jeopardy is. All right, so here we go. Read it out loud. Number one, read it out loud. What does mean to repent? Now, why am I, you say, what are you doing today? It's so basic. Here's what I want us to do. There are so many definitions of what repentance means in this room. I'd rather get us all on the same page. I'm not going to quote some famous evangelist. I'm not going to quote a pastor. I'm not going to quote a podcast that you heard. I'm not going to, let's I tell you what, we read twice in Matthew chapter one, verse one and two, it says that John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Then in Matthew chapter four, it says, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So here's the thing. I want to know what John the Baptist and Jesus meant by that. Okay, let's just, let's just clear the deck. We're not going to any doctrinal book or anything like that. We're, we're just going to look. What did it mean? when? What was John the Baptist meaning? Because these were people who were serving God. They just hadn't gone, they just hadn't accepted Jesus. They didn't think Jesus was necessary or they didn't even believe in his role. And then here comes Jesus and he's saying the same thing. What did he mean by this? So the word repent comes from the Greek word. And here's what I want you to catch. The word means to heartily amend with abhorrence one's past sins. It means to change one's mind for the good. So this means this. It is not only an act of my will where I am repenting, it, it involves my will and my emotion. Notice it says with abhorrence. It, it says this, I get it. I'm just not wrong. I'm dead wrong. You got it? This is not, listen to me, this is not saying, gee, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. So far, you haven't said you're wrong. I've dealt with leaders all my life in the community, in the business world, in the church world. And sometimes leaders get themselves in trouble. And so there's a, there's a meeting to talk about. You got yourself in trouble because you made some very poor decisions and choices. And so part of this is, is what can we do to help and how can we bring restoration? How do we help them? And this is critical. Sometimes what you hear is this statement. They say this, I really regret how this played out. 
They never use the word wrong. I regret that so many people were affected by my decision. Well, that's part of it. But I'm still waiting on I was wrong. Everybody got it? I re and so it comes across like they're sorry that they employed the wrong method. No, you just had the wrong idea. You can borrow any method that you want. The problem was not the method. The problem was your whole idea was the wrong idea. And so there shouldn't have even been the idea of trying to figure out a method here. You're dead wrong. Repentance is this. I was wrong. Nobody else's fault. Not putting the blame anywhere. Acknowledging I made the mistake. I made the decision. You're looking at the one who's totally and completely responsible for this. It's not, well, I'm just, I'm really regretful that it played out the way that it did. Okay, I'm not saying that that's not important, but I still haven't heard I'm wrong. Everybody got me? Americans are really good at admitting without confessing. It's almost like we watch too many law and order shows, you know? How to give testimony but not implicate myself and all that kind of stuff. And we, we act like it's the same way with God. And God's going, I don't think you get it. I'm prosecutor, I'm judge, I'm the witness, I, you know. God says, I am the courtroom. Yeah. And so, this is, and notice this, to change one's mind for the good. I've heard it this way. People will say to avert that. I probably shouldn't have done it that way. No, you shouldn't have done it. There wasn't any way for you to do this. You shouldn't have done it, okay? This is changing one's mind for the good. This is not renegotiating the tactic with which you found a way to do what you did, and it was probably not the best way to do it. No, it, wasn't. it just wasn't a way to do it, okay? It's coming clean. Give me a mess how hard that is for people. You know, there's, there's all kinds of groups out there that are helped with people in addiction. And one of the hardest things that many of them have a hard time when it comes to help is admitting what the problem is. And they'll go to a, some type of meeting and they'll say, hey, my name is such and such and I'm an alcoholic. And boy, you would just think that you were just, a, I mean, they, they, the first time they get that out of their mouth is hard. Or, hey, my name is such and such and I'm a drug addict. Or, hey, I'm, I'm such and such and I have this addiction. And sometimes as people, we look at that and we go, man, that's a shame that they find that so hard. Hey, I find people, it, it's that way when it comes to repentance that, hey, you're a sinner. You've made bad choices. And did you know there's no way for you to fix it except go to God. And somehow our human nature wants to fight bending our knee saying, I'm dead wrong. And then I need God. And that's what these Jewish people were in. Matthew is showing them, I don't care what kind of excuses, I don't care what you, how you want to tell your story, I don't want to, it all boils down to this. You need to repent. You, listen, you don't just need to have regrets. You need to change your mind. And everybody said amen. amen. Number two, read it out loud. 
What does it mean to what does it mean to produce fruit? So it's a follow-up statement that they gave to repentance. It says in Matthew 3, uh, when John the Baptist was preaching, repent, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He ties the two together. In Matthew 7, 18 and 19, later on, when Jesus was doing the Sermon on the Mount, he's unpacking this issue of repentance and he gets to, and, and, and what it's like to find out who the real deals are. And he says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How's that for clarity? He says, this one we don't even trim. We just cut it down, throw it into the fire. Wow. Well, we read, we read in the Gospel of John how he did use the vine, and we talk about trimming and all that, okay, to bear much fruit. We get all that. But it says in some cases you don't trim. You just go in there with an axe and cut it down. Pretty harsh. So what, so what does it mean? Again, let's go back to what does he mean, produce fruit? Exactly. Not, not, you know, not according to our definitions or how we feel. Let's just go. So the Greek word for produce means this. It means to cause, to work, to make. So this says this. I have skin in the game. This just doesn't happen. Okay? This says I have to put my will behind it to make it happen. I have to use my will. I have to cause it. I have to work at it. See, what you find is this. There are a lot of things you just don't feel like doing, but you have a will that can override your feelings to get done what ought to get done. That's the beauty that God has given us. He can says, I give you a willpower that can override impulse. Aren't you glad? Otherwise you would never get your taxes done. Now, some of you will ride that impulse till April 15th, 9 o'clock at night, and then you're going to get her done in those last three hours and make a mad dash to the, the post office, or you're going to send it in electronically. But the point being is you will get it done, not because you feel like it, but you will use your willpower and a cup of coffee. Just says, I got to be in there and get it done. Don't anybody interrupt me until, until I hit the send button. Okay? It's the same way. We all know how to get healthy. We all hear the, the talks about go to the gym, eat right. Did you know there's people who stare at a piece of equipment in a gym for 15 minutes and they're just tired staring? <laughs> but did you know they still haven't done one thing to get in shape? Yeah, but my heart, I, I meant to. I have good motives. That's great. You're still no better off. Okay? The point being is you have a will that can overcome the impulse and get on some type of exercise. Same thing with eating. We all have an impulse. We all want to have M&Ms for communion. <laughs> We're convinced it'll work as a diet for breakfast. But you have a willpower that says, you know, that's just not a good idea. Don't do that. And you don't. You don't, do you? <laughs> do, don't do that. Okay. So this, listen, God saves me 
with my words, I confess. And then God says, now it's time for you to take some action. You. Your willpower. This is about redirecting your efforts from what you have been doing. to. So we ha- and then the word fruit. It means works, acts, deeds. So in other words, there are things that are not going to happen until I put the effort into making them happen. And again, it, it comes down to the fact that it's, it's the beauty. I can override impulses. I don't have to. That doesn't mean it's not a battle. And you know what? Some of us have more battles in our impulses in our life than others, but we all have a battle with various impulses. And God says those impulses don't have to win the day. I gave you a will. So produce fruit means, okay, so now I have to work at it. I got to put some skin in the game. It's not just going to happen mysteriously. I'm going to have to do. So the question is, what is that? What is it that I have to do? I'm glad you asked that question this morning. It just so happens I'm ready for that question. So number three is not a question. It's a statement. Read this. Repentance and producing fruit is what defines a disciple of Christ. Now we're going to the end of the gospel. Reading Matthew 28, verses 19, 20. This is a very familiar scripture in so many arenas for people. But you've heard me say, I always like, yeah, I I share a lot of information that I've learned over the years and I use it again and again, but I always like to study until I learn something that I did not know before. And so here we come to something that I did not know before. Are you ready for this today? This is is my aha. I'm going to try to make it your aha because it's my aha. I want everybody to have an aha. All right, here we go. It says, therefore, go and make what? Does it say converts? Does it say go and make religious activity? What does it say? Disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. So the way it's phrased, we sometimes think that means jumping geographical arenas. No. It also includes that, but when we talk about all nations, you got to remember where these folks were. It was also their neighborhoods and their environment. So in other words, do not exclude anybody because of their nationality. Whether it's a geographical location or they are present in your community. Go to all nations. The second thing is this. It doesn't say they're coming to you. It says that you're to go to them. Got it? Go and make disciples. Did everybody see the word make? So this is not just going to be some spiritual mysticistic moment that just happens. And I don't know what happened. No, I can tell you what happened. You engaged your will and you went and you went and you Put some effort into it. You had some skin in the game. And, okay, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now look at he. Matthew continues to unpack the definition of a disciple. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He provides the definition. So here's the thing that I learned about this that I did not know before. You ready for this? In his gospel, Matthew uses the word disciple and disciple 78 times. He only has 28 chapters. He's averaging like two and a half times per chapter. If he was preaching in a church, they would say, lay off the word. 
you're using it as a stall phrase or you know you are you trying to gather your thoughts and you keep your you're being really redundant you know after the fifth time you can stop saying the word he says it 78 times this is where I'm so glad for a computer. I did not go into Matthew and start counting them one by one by one by one by one by one. You know, that's the beauty. You can just type in, you know, the word and the, and the book and it just pulls it up for you. You're like, oh, wow, 78. And like I said, how many times have I read the Gospel of Matthew over the years of my life? How many times have I preached this? And I never caught the frequency with which he was saying. And the point being is this is being said to people who have a, uh, an, a religious activity towards God already. These aren't godless people he's writing. And yet he's pounding, disciple, 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 disciple. I'm not going to say it 78 times. Does everybody get the point? He's pounding it. So then that brings us back to this. So now that we know what repentance is, and now we know what produced fruit is, and being a disciple is a product that let's let's go a little further into what exactly does the word disciple if he's going to use it so frequently what exactly are we talking about well the word disciple comes from the Greek word which means to follow his instructions and precepts that's why in the gospel of Matthew later he says teaching them to obey everything I command does everybody understand what the word everything means means everything means no exclusion it means all of it and so a disciple is one who does not excuse portions of the Bible because we find it uncomfortable we don't dismiss portions of the Bible because we go well that's not what I was taught at school it's not what I was taught at the university that's not what the talking heads are saying on the news networks that's not according to this can I tell you a follower of Christ says, I'm willing to stake my eternity and stand behind God's word over some so-called expert who has had a short breath of time from 50 to 80 years, and my God has eternity on his side. I think the God of eternity probably has a better definition. Yeah, you got to make some choices and decisions. And so we have movements now today to begin to scrub the scriptures of its validity and some of its principles let me just say this with that goes the whole concept of discipleship so i'm i don't say this sarcastically i'm not trying to gaslight any topic or issue i'm just hear me if discipleship means to follow his instructions and precepts and then you decide it's time to start scrubbing some of scripture's perspective because quote we're woke or we're enlightened then if you're, that means you're not creating disciples, what are you creating? They can't be disciples. Because disciples follow his instructions and precepts. You're scrubbing it. So what are you? I don't have the answer to that. Only to say it's not disciples. Does everybody got me? So it's more than just toying with scripture, they're toying with the whole idea of what transformation even is. Because discipleship is the process of being transformed. It is, it is the sanctification process. Let me, how many would like to hear a confession of your pastor? Well, that was louder than normal. <laughs> Do you know, as long as I followed Christ, 
Don't worry, it's not like, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, no, just relax. Did you know after all the years that I have served Christ, there are times I read the Bible and then suddenly I see something that I didn't see before and I have an understanding that I didn't have before and then I recognize that I'm not doing that. I'm just going to be very transparent. This is sometimes my reaction. Oh, come on, God, you got to be kidding me. Maybe I read that wrong. And I struggle with it. I don't struggle from the aspect of how do I dismiss this. I struggle with how am I going to do this. It's not a dismissal mentality. It's a how am I going to do this? How do I incorporate this? And a lot of times it just comes down to, God, you're going to have to help me. <laughs> I've got a lot of established ways in my life at this point. <laughs> uh, knowing that younger might have been easier. <laughs> Today, not so easy. Help. See, I'm committed. To follow. I do not exist to try to be dismissive of parts of Scripture merely because they bring discomfort to me. Or you find parts of Scripture discomforting to you. Just listen, I've said this over and over. Just because you or me or anybody else finds a part of Scripture more difficult for us to live out than other people does not give us a right to be dismissive of that passage. Okay, so it's more difficult for you. I can point out other Scriptures that are more difficult for me than they are for you. What? So now I have the power to dismiss it? Yeah, you're right. There are some Scriptures that might cost you more personally because of how you've positioned your life at this point. And so it's going to cost you more than me. I get that. But do you know, there's parts of my life, maybe I've positioned myself, and now I need to make those changes, and so it's going to cost me more than it's going to cost you. So what? Because so now my Christianity is based on cost? A cost analysis? But you see people making decisions like this all the time. They maybe don't say it in, in such an articulate way, in a clear way, but you see the processes, you go, so you've ran a cost analysis in your life and determined, can't do it, so therefore we'll dismiss it. Wow, what a way. I don't think you can even remotely call yourself a disciple. How do you do that? So, I got so excited I hit the button and I went to the other slide. You ready for it? <laughs> Everybody read, what does it say? So this is really a good time for me to address repentance, uh, producing fruit, and discipleship. You see something that's in the news, I, and I'm so excited to see this happen. How many of you heard about the Asbury Revival? Let me see your hand. So many of you have. If you haven't, feel free to Google it. And so some of the questions I get is, what about this? Do you think it's real? I say, trust me. You can't get college students to do that unless it's God. Okay? Now, I say that. Why am I so grateful? And I understand we got some of the young adults in here. And it is not my, it is not my intent to say anything which badmouths your generation. But 
from somebody who has been a part of various things over my life. I want to give you my, so this is Pastor Greg's perspective. You don't have to buy it. You can just, if you don't like it, you don't agree with it, you can just dismiss it. This is one of the few times that I'm going to let you do that, okay? Why am I excited about this? Because the young adult generation is a spiritual orphaned generation. They have come of age and are getting ready to launch into life, and they have no spiritual fathers and they have no spiritual roots. I'm speaking as a generation. There's nothing cohesive about their value system and what they stand for. It's individualism. And that has ramifications for us as a nation and community when 20 and 25 years later, if they stay spiritual orphans, they come into positions of authority and, and be running businesses and doing a variety of things because now they got 20, 25 years of experience and some of us are off the scene by that time and you will have spiritual orphans directing things. Not good. We all know the role and the value of having a father in, a, in any person's life. And so what I see is, is this, this outpouring of God saying, hey, you're not an orphan. I'm your dad. I see you. I hear you. I watch you. And these, these college kids are responding to that. But what I want to show you is, and I'm you know, nobody's asking me my opinions on this. No, I, I'm, I'm praying for it. But let me tell you why I'm praying and how I'm praying for this. So I created a model for you this morning, okay? You all ready for it? Okay. So number one is this. There's this principle we do see in the scripture. We call it repentance. Some people call it renewal. Some people call it a revival. There's a variety of vernacular terms that are used to describe people who find themselves in an extraordinary uh, way and there's more response towards God in this arena than there normally is. When you have college students lined up and then the building is already full and they've gone to another building and now there's three buildings full, that says something's happening. Okay? And so there's the, so what we read is this. We want to be careful about history. We want to start with scripture. Does the Bible have anything that can provide insight? And I want to tell you, yes. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 9 or 17, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when Luke was describing Peter's uh, preaching of the gospel to the masses on that day, this is a key word. Luke uses this exact phraseology. He says they were cut to the heart. Now you may go, really? Is that? Yeah, if you will. See, we get into these scriptures and we kind of just blow through them so fast. It was very interesting that he, it's the only time he ever even used the word, cut to the heart. So he's saying, this is not just a response. It is a very unusual response. It is it is an act of the will, but there seems to be more emotion associated. How many know when your heart gets cut, it becomes emotional? I mean, it's your will is there, but the emotional aspect is added, right? And then you go to Acts chapter 9. 
Saul, as he was known in the day. He was a religious terrorist. Then God shows up on the road and he blinds him, knocks him off, his, off his, uh, the animal that he's riding. He converses with a voice and then the voice stops and the light disappears and he's left blind. He goes to Damascus. He fasts and prays for three days. Ananias receives a word, a prophetic word that he needs to go to this place and he's, he, and he's on straight street. You can look it up. God actually gave the street where Saul, and he leads Saul to Christ. Now, I don't know about you, that's called a dramatic salvation experience. If Saul tried, which is, he became later known as Paul, if he tried to tell that testimony in churches today, most pastors would shut him down. We can't have that kind of, you know, it's just too much for our people. <laughs> We're still trying to figure out whether we believe in miracles or not. And then you want to say how God knocked you out of your car and you, know, you had a conversation with a light and a voice and then it left and then you're blind and, you know, hey, can you just say Jesus saved you and move on from there? Sarah, come on, you know that's true. There would be churches that would shut his testimony down in a heartbeat. And I, so I say this. In Acts, in Acts chapter 2, it says 3,000 were added in one day. Now, if that ain't revival, I don't know what it is. Okay? So the scriptures aren't silent. It's just sometimes the lens with which we read it. And in the middle of that, sometimes you read about people who've had a Saul experience. But what I want to point out is this. It all happened on Main Street. which tells you where God wants us to go. Everything I just gave you happened on the street. Not one of it was in a service. I'm all for powerful services, but that doesn't mean you have powerful living. But if you get people to have powerful living, you will have powerful services. Okay, that's cue for Pastor Greg to move on. So, where does it go from here? Well, what Jesus says. We need to have discipleship. This is transformation. This is where it all happens. This is where we start to learn about the belief system that made it necessary for me to repent to begin with. If I don't learn a new belief system, if I don't replace the old belief system with a biblical uh, belief system, then I'm going to go back out and do exactly the same things I did before that, that led me to the fact that I needed to repent. So there has to be a disciple transformation process. And the Bible talks about this. Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples, teaching them everything. In John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, if you obey my teachings, you're really my disciples. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, what do you do when 3,000 people get saved in one day? And you don't have Zoom. To tell, I mean, what do you do? It says, they, if you read that, it says they all began to meet in houses and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, and the breaking of bread and helping each other out. They all went into connection groups. Why? To be discipled. Because you can't disciple in masses. Discipleship requires that you know me, I know you, 
You ask questions, I help you figure them out. I ask questions, you help me figure it out. Discipleship requires relationship. 3,000 people were added that day. And they immediately went into the house connections. And that's how they stayed. And that's where, listen, that's where, and you read, it says, and the people were, were being added daily. So in other words, instead of it moving from this mass, it, it became a regular thing that was happening every day on Main Street. Every day. As a result of discipleship. Then, here's the thing. Disciples, when, you, when repentance, renewal, revival, revival, and people get discipled and they're changed, they change their value systems. If enough people do this and they hit the marketplace, it produces what we call a reformation. You say, what's that? So you notice I have revival on one end and reformation on the other? What is a reformation? Reformation is where institutions and organizations are changed back to the way they should have been all along. And nobody voted. Why? Because all the participants of the institution and the organization had a change in their value system. And when they showed up, there was no vote. It was just how they were living. How they were living changed the institution. There were no new laws. There were no protests. There was no, we got a clean house. It was just... Everybody that contributed to the institution and the organization had a change of heart. And so how they saw the organization needing to function from then on just changed change because of heart value shifting, not because of the bylaw shifting. Because everybody knows this, the letter of the law will always kill. But suddenly they start to realize, yeah, it's how our, it's the value systems that is interpreting what the law is, is the problem. We need, we need to change us, and then things change. And so, you, by the way, you see this in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 13 through 16, I preached this a couple weeks ago. Jesus said, you're the salt, you're the light. Let your good deeds shine before men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. That's... That's talking about doing it out there. That you do so well on Main Street that people ask you, what are you doing? Why are you doing such an excellent job at your job? Why, do you, why are you so nice to people? Why do you do that? You're not being paid to do that. Why do you go above and beyond what everybody is expecting? That's reformation starting on Main Street. In Proverbs chapter 11, verses 10 and 11, it says, the city is blessed because of the righteous. Listen to me. We make this community better. When we live by the biblical values, this becomes a better community to live in. It says our cities are blessed when the righteous do right and the righteous thrive. So reformation, notice it doesn't say, well, now you got to get your people in their political positions. No, it just says the righteous are the blessings of the city. Because you see, no government, no, they can't pass enough laws and hire enough people to monitor us. So if we choose to do good, it doesn't matter whether they want us to do good or not. We do good. 
And then you come to Isaiah 58, verse 12. We prayed over this, our fasting time. And it says that you will be wall rebuilders. You will be restorer of streets with dwellings. We're supposed to bring reformation. We're supposed to make where we live, where we work better. So when enough people who repent and get discipled and start living it out, communities shift. Organizations and institutions are changed. Can you imagine if God saved professors at some of these secular universities? There would be no academic meeting. The professor would just go in and change it because they have the authority to do that. And when you say what happened, they would say, because I've accepted Christ. My value system has changed. These students deserve to know the difference. And that's what we need to do is be praying for these students because eventually they do have to go back to class. And I want them discipled that they can sit in a room and go, that's not true. But I don't have to have a protest. I don't have to boycott. I don't have to get mad. I don't have to take on the professor. I have a value system in my, I hear you. I know what I have to do to get the grade, but you're nuts if you think I'm believing this stuff. That's discipleship, the ability to sit in adverse conditions you don't have to start a fight. You don't have to start a pick or pick a protest. It's just that you go, no, I know that's not true. And I have my sources to go get the truth. I think we're seeing spiritual orphans finding their spiritual father. It's that model that I just gave you that brought down the Roman Empire. For 300 years, the Christians were not allowed to have property for a church building. They had to just go houses, that was it. 300 years. So around 350 AD, the emperor of Rome, I'm summarizing history, okay? It's a long story. Summarizing, he says, 50% of the Roman Empire is Christian. And it's illegal. What are we doing? There was no vote, there was no protest. Not even Rome could stop people from, run, from living by their values and accepting Jesus. And he said, well, this has not worked, so they're legal. And there was a plethora of, Christian, of Christians going and getting property, started to build their temples and all this kind of stuff because now they could finally, they, they brought the most powerful nation to its knees by just living their values. I'll give you one quick story. I've shared this before, but I'll give you a quick story and we'll wrap it up. One of the way, there were so many methods or, and practices of the Christians that were in conflict with Roman culture that brought it down. Here's one particular aspect. So this wasn't the key, it was just one of many. So in the Roman culture, it was very, very important that their firstborn be a son. So when a child was born, the father would often be present, and if it was a girl, he would, you know, everybody's seen, turn the thumb down, that meant take the child out and kill the child. 
If it was a boy, he would let it live. So it's just important that it be always a boy, the firstborn. So when it was a girl, many of the dads would turn their thumb down, and it was left to the midwives to dispose of the child. They didn't want they they didn't have the audacity they didn't have the audacity or the courage to be able to do that themselves. They would take the child to the alleyways of the town, the city, or take them into the wilderness and let the elements take care of it, so to speak. The Christians were aware of this practice, and so they would go out at night and they would do baby hunts. They would walk the alleyways, they would walk the woods, and they were listening for the cry of a child. And the rule of the Christian community was, if you hear the cry of a child, you go to it. If you find the child, you do not bring the child back to us as a community and say, what should we do? You found it, God helped you to hear the cry, it is now your child. They said, if God put you there and you heard the cry, it is now your child. And so after decades and decades of the Christians rescuing the girls and raising them and then them starting their, what you found was Rome was running short of women to marry. And so guess where all the women were? And so one of the elements that was being done by those, these women in the Christian community was you're crazy if I'm going to have a family with you and having those values because by those values, I shouldn't even be breathing. It was a wake-up call. I'm not sure every man may have had a pure motive, but many of them got saved. <laughs> Maybe not every motive was pure, but... It's a wake-up call to go, that's right, I guess. I guess if I would have fallen the Roman ways, you wouldn't even be here. Yeah, you're right. I don't want to have a Roman family. I want to have a Christian family where everybody has value of life. And see, it's just incremental. Let me just tell you, incrementally picking apart culture, not based on some organized effort. It's people finding Jesus, getting discipled, and say, this is how we live our lives. And it doesn't matter whether anybody is for me or against me. This is how I choose to live. And this is how I will live. And this is how I will teach my family to live. And everybody said, amen. Would you all stand on your feet at this time? And here's how we're going to, we're going to close here in just a second. But here's what I always say. I want you to lift your hands and praise them. Can I ask you this? Will you lift your hands and pray that this orphan spiritual generation find Jesus? Will you pray out loud that they will find God the Father? Because when they listen, when they leave the universities and these campuses, they're going to be coming to communities. Oh God, send some Asbury's to us. We'll disciple, won't we? I want them to get discipled. I want them to be a part of what God has for their life and our life. But come on, everybody, lift your voice. I want you to pray for them. Would you do that? Come on, everybody, pray for them.